Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fuglesang Podcast. It's Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fuglesang. Good evening and welcome to Progress After Dark. What a day. What a night. So much is going on. The news is still piling up. It's one of those rare times we say, thank God they put our show on here at What the Fuck O'Clock because we are thrilled to be bringing you all the latest from all the debates going on around the country tonight. It is really debate night, and we have got a couple of smart guests to help wade our way through. John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation, will be with us. He's written so many great books, including Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. Uh, he's been writing some great stuff for The Nation. We'll also be welcoming George Gale, who is a community organizer, formerly executive director of People's Action, which is an org formed through the merger of five national organizations into one of the largest. And he does a substack on fundamentals for organizing. And we're going to talk all about what's going on in the election. Well, and what's really at stake and how much we need to really take these polls seriously. It is debate night in America. This is one of the biggest evenings you'll be seeing on the entire year for the midterm calendar. John Fetterman is debating versus uh, Mehmet Oz right now in Pennsylvania. Lots of right wing people are tweeting a lot of awful things about a stroke survivor that they can never untweet. Uh, Governor Kathy Hochul in New York is debating Representative Lee Zeldin. Over there in Michigan, Tudor Dixon is debating Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And in Colorado, Senator Michael Bennett is debating Joe O'Day. And it's been crazy. The Senate Leadership Fund has just thrown another $6 million to try to help Dr. Oz. At this point, Dr. Oz's campaign is so useless. Dr. Oz is selling it as a vitamin on his show. And, of course, uh, there's a lot of money being spent in that race. And Fetterman is now, according to the latest CBS YouGov poll, Fetterman is ahead of Oz, but only by two points. In New York, Democrats are flipping out about how the governor's race is suddenly extremely close. And many are pointing fingers saying Governor Kathy Hochul has spent too much time talking about abortion rights and not talking about crime. I just want to say every single Republican that you're going to hear talking about how these Democrats are soft on crime is a Republican who wants to do nothing about gun violence. Remember that. They don't care about crime. Crime is good. Crime helps the people who donate to their campaigns sell more guns. Crime helps fill the prisons, the for-profit prisons, with more of you-know-who, and that gets them reelected. The GOP wants every cop in America to potentially have to face 19-year-old males who easily bought an AR-15. They don't care about crime. Democrats are responding not by calling out their hypocrisy, but by saying, dub, 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 dub. 
We'll get to that later on in the show. In Michigan, Barack Obama has a new ad backing Gretchen Whitmer. And in Colorado, well, you'll see (laughs) Mr. O'Day is playing up the border, which is not really a problem in Colorado. Uh, Chris Hauselt's our executive producer. Thea Harper's our associate producer. I'm coming to you live from New York City. I will be heading off to London tomorrow. I'm participating in an event at the House of Commons about religion and media. I'm very sorry to not be here, but the great Joe Sudbay will be filling in, and the heroic and brilliant Professor Corey Brechneider is having the mic passed to him this Friday. Do not miss it. There is so much going on in the news. We have so many debate clips to share with you tonight about all that's going on around the country and so much news that happened today. Let's begin by talking about Kanye West, shall we? <laughs> of course. I, I, I Listen, I'm going to let you finish, Kanye, but Old Dirty Bastard was the most self-destructive, mentally unstable MC of all time. Now, I'm old enough to remember the media covering Kanye West as an artist rather than enabling his public mental illness struggles as a celebrity. Shucks, I'm old enough to remember when people thought Kanye was going to be the one giving Kim Kardashian credibility. It's always dodgy to talk about the artist formerly known as an artist. I think Kanye actually likes to think that people actually like to think about what Kanye actually likes to think. And it's not going well. Okay, Kanye West's life is blowing up. He's marginalizing himself. He's made Pete Davidson look like the mature, stable adult in the room. He's drifted to the right. He's done inexplicably tone-deaf, kissy-face flirtations with racists. He can't stop cozying up to Donald Trump. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, we get it, Kanye. You like big asses. We understand. But in the last couple of months, I want you to remember, the last couple of years, remember the Confederate flag patch? Remember that? That symbol of white supremacy, that symbol of quitting America, committing treason because you wanted to keep people in bondage. Remember in 2018 when he said, when you hear about slavery for 400 years, for 400 years, that sounds like a choice. You were there for 400 years and it's all of y'all. It's like we were mentally imprisoned. Well, Kanye has made so many bad choices in 2022. He just got an intervention from Vladimir Putin. You see, uh, Kanye no longer drops albums. He's moved on to pogroms. Um, the anti-Semitism has gotten out of control, and Kanye is just the shiniest example of it. It's actually going on to a terrifying degree across our country and the right wing exclusively and across Europe. Uh, but, but, but let's go back. Just this the last couple of weeks. The first sign that there might be a problem with Kanye's relationship with Adidas and his other sponsors came when Adidas announced this review of its collaboration with Yee and the Yeezy brand, because he went to Paris Fashion Week and wore this t-shirt that said, White Lives Matter. Did it with Candace Owens. Now, of course, white lives matter. Of course, all lives matter. But the reality is, if we really believe black lives mattered, we wouldn't need an all lives matter movement or a black lives matter movement. See, white lives matter is not a statement. It's a taunt. It's a taunt at people. White, black, all backgrounds who say black lives matter because they've recognized that it's 2022 and we still have to remind people of that fact. We still have to dare people to see if they're capable of saying those words. And in the past couple of weeks, as you all know, Yee has made anti-Semitic comments on Instagram and Twitter. Both those accounts got restricted. He got so mad he decided to buy Parler, another right-wing social media site for racist losers for an undisclosed amount. Now, again, Yee has blamed some of his previous public behaviors um, on bipolar disorder. And I get that, right? I I respect that. 
I have nothing but compassion for everyone who's struggling with mental illness. The fact, though, is most of the people struggling with mental illness don't come out and say Jew-hating shit. Um, he went on the podcast Drink Champs and ranted more about Jewish people and repeated these anti-Semitic tropes and lies. He also, in that interview on Drink Champs, lied that George Floyd, who was a black man murdered by police in Minneapolis, died not from the murder, not from the knee on his neck for nine minutes, but that George Floyd had died from a fentanyl injection. And a couple of weeks ago, Tucker Carlson interviewed Kanye, you'll recall, and he now is so protecting Kanye because he is the pet rapper of racist America that Tucker cut out the most explicit anti-Semitism and then told his audience how Kanye speaks the truth. So it's been getting messier, right? A lot of companies like French fashion house Balenciaga, I'm sorry, Balenciaga, J.P. Morgan Chase, the talent agency, CAA, uh, Hollywood financier and producer MRC, which was making a documentary, they've canceled them. He's restricted on Instagram and Twitter. His airplay and streaming has gone way down, dropped by his lawyer, dropped by his agents. Vogue and Anna Wintour cut ties to him. His stadium shows have been canceled, and the documentary about him has been put on the shelf. And early this week, The Gap, which ended their whole relationship with Kanye last month, The Gap announced they were going to pull all the Yeezy Gap inventory off the stores. They were shutting down the line's website. Uh, but not Adidas. Not Adidas. For weeks, we've wondered, why Adidas? Is it really just about the money? No, you should know Adidas comes from the company's founder's name. It was Adi Dossler. Adi Das. Adidas. Adi Dossler. Uh, Adi Dossler joined the German Nazi party in 1933. And he made a lot of money early in his career by supplying sneakers to Hitler Youth. This is the company we've been wondering. When will they be outraged by Kanye's anti-Semitism? Because they sure weren't, they weren't outraged by his racism. But we'll get to that in a second. Well, Yeezy's brand generated an estimated uh, $2 billion a year, which is about 10% of Adidas's entire annual revenue. Yeezy's are the second biggest shoe brand in history. And for a recent brand, they, they got there in like less than five years. You have to understand how huge these hideous-looking sneakers are, and they are hideous. I'm sorry. It looks like you stepped in an ink blot. It's not a good design. So, again, I want to bring it back to the comments that made people most shocked that Adidas would not terminate their relationship, and that's when he was on this podcast. This is after the Tucker Carlson interview, right, where he was saying how children should learn about Hanukkah and not Kwanzaa because at least it would come with some financial engineering. He said that. Literally, we thought he was saying a nice thing about Jews. No, he's just pushing another stereotype. But it was on the podcast where he said this about how sure he was that as there is a sun in the sky, Adidas not only wouldn't ever fire him, they couldn't. Give a listen. Uh-huh. Um, so Adidas wouldn't drop him. He was right. Until, until their stock dropped 17%. And suddenly... They found Jesus, and they dropped Jesus. But Adidas has now cut ties with Kanye West over the anti-Semitic remarks. But again, <laughs> it's another layer of bullshit we have to cut through. Because the company said they will end production of Yeezy-branded products and stop all payments to Yee and his companies. This is huge. This was a multi-billion dollar business. And Adidas was the largest backer of Kanye's empire. And there's been weeks of pressure. And this is a German company. They were the only one of Yee's business partners. 
that didn't have a problem with this hatred of Jewish people. And they announced they would immediately end production of Yeezy branded products and stop all payments to them. Their statement said Adidas does not tolerate anti-Semitism and any other sort of hate speech. Yee's recent comments and actions have been unacceptable, hateful, and dangerous. The problem is they do tolerate it. They tolerated it for weeks. And let's be honest, when it comes to comments about African Americans, they've tolerated it for years. Congratulations, Adidas, on finally doing the bare minimum. I know it's a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's, it's billions. This, this deal, this split, will cost the company at least 250 million euros, about 250 million dollars this year. He bragged that he was the richest black man in history. Forbes now estimates that one and a half billion of his net worth was tied to the Adidas deal. 400 million comes from real estate and cash and his music catalog and a 5% stake in uh, Kim Kardashian's shapewear company, Skims. Today, he's no longer a billionaire. Now, Now, again, the important thing to remember is Adidas did not drop Kanye West because they stand against anti-Semitism. Okay? Those comments were out there for a while. They dropped him because their stock was falling hard. And their analysts told them, if you want to salvage your stock, you need to drop him. It's not heroic what they did. Adidas did not fire him as a response to his bigoted stupidity. Okay? He said the bigoted stupid shit. People protested. And then the stock went down. And then they fired him. Those four things happened. People protested, then the stock went down. So Adidas responded to the response to the response. And again, before he was the modern face of anti-Semitism, he was one of the few hip-hop faces of putting down black people and denying the horrors of slavery. Here's, here's my thing, right? And let me choose my words carefully as a nervous Caucasian. Kanye's insults to blackness should have been enough for Adidas to pull the plug. Why weren't they? I mean, why wasn't the offensive stuff he said before this enough? Well, you know why? Because he was putting down black people. And that wasn't a problem for all of these sponsors, all the people that were in business with Kanye up until today. When he desecrated the memories of the humans who lived and died, were abused and raped and had their families sold apart by slavery, not a problem. Because there's an ugly truth that black people know and more Caucasians need to be aware of. And again, I'm trying to choose my words carefully. I will acknowledge that I am a honky white bread motherfucker here. But the reality in our culture is if you're a black person who is willing to denigrate black men and smear black women and badmouth black youth, there's a white man who will put you on their airwaves. If you're a black person who doesn't want to talk about racism, doesn't want to talk about police brutality, doesn't care about historic cycles of poverty and redlining and gerrymandering and voter ID laws when there's no problem with voter impersonation. If you're a black person who doesn't want to talk about qualified immunity for police, disproportionate incarceration rates, the school to prison pipeline. The structural racism that's been baked into the system we've all been raised in. If you're a black person who doesn't care about any of that, there is a white man with a media platform who's willing to make you famous. Alan Keyes, Herman Cain, Diamond and Silk, Jesse Lee Peterson, Candace Owens. I could go on. Stacey Dash. Just come out and repeat some ignorant, insensitive trope about the Democrats who want to keep black folks on the plantation, you know, insult the majority of African-Americans in this country for voting Democrat, show us you don't take slavery seriously any more than the slobbering goobers who wave the flag of slavery and treason for fun. Show us that, and you can be a media star. (laughs) And again, these black conservatives, I don't even want to call them conservatives. They don't do this 
to reach black Democrats. They say, oh, I'm trying to encourage other Democrats to come away from the Democratic plantation and come over to the GOP. No, no, no. They're not trying to get any black voters to come over to the GOP. They're doing it for themselves. They're doing it to make white racist leaning conservatives feel better about supporting a party that African-Americans are smart enough to not support. That's the reality. Go, go check out Jesse Lee Peterson's show on YouTube and read the comments. They're all racists. And Jesse's there. I did his show, bad-mouthing black women, bad-mouthing black men. And his audience of racists love it. And they keep tuning in and they keep clicking and they keep commenting. And that's how the hustle runs. Kanye insulted African-Americans for years and he still got the contracts. He got the documentaries. He got the endorsements. He got, he got millions and millions of dollars. Adidas did cut him off today, and they, it was right to do. But if more companies had started cutting him loose when he began doing all the anti-black nonsense, he never would have made it to anti-Semitism. And again, I know, th- there's a part of me that wants to say, hey, man, Kanye has officially crossed into Anna Nicole Smith. We can't really make fun of this anymore territory, right? He's not well, clearly not well. But again, it's an insult to everybody who struggles with mental illness, who gets out of bed in the morning, who puts on their clothes and goes to work and puts on the bravest face they can do. Everyone who's tried medication, who's tried working out, who's tried talk therapy, everyone who struggles to overcome their mental illness to say, oh, well, he's just said this racist and anti-Semitic bullshit because he's struggling with bipolar disorder. That's some bullshit, folks. Every one of you probably knows someone or loves someone who has struggled with it. They don't say things like that. And the Republican Party is the one organization that will not cut Kanye West loose. They will continue to stand by him. And why wouldn't they? I mean, they're standing by Donald Trump after his rabid anti-Semitism that came out last week. He just called Elaine Chow, Coco Chow, again yesterday. Trump can't stop being racist. Trump can't stop putting down American Jews, praising Israeli Jews and telling American Jews they're not real Jews. Guys, Kanye's stupid anti-Semitism It's not really a big story. The rising anti-Semitism in America and across Europe is. And the Republican Party and Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump are standing by him because he's their pet rapper. And he'll come out and say all the derogatory things about black men, black women and black youth that Tucker Carlson knows he can't get away with saying the white guy will just give him the platform. So thanks, I guess, Adidas. I know the stock prices were getting to you. I know the bad press was getting to you. You did the right thing. It doesn't make you any better, Adidas. You could have been brave on this. You didn't lead. You just played catch up. The only way you can make it better to me is to take Kanye West's endorsement gig and give it to Pete Davidson. As a fan of comedy, I'm here for that. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu 
slash podcast. I'm John Fiegel saying this is Sirius XM Progress. John Nichols is national affairs correspondent for The Nation. He's a contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times. He's written lots of terrific books, including The Genius of Impeachment, The S-Word, and his most recent Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. There is no way we can look at a midterm election and not talk to the great John Nichols. Hello, sir. Welcome back. It's a great honor to be with you, my friend. And, uh, I'll I'll start us out just by mentioning, and I know you you know this, and I'll appreciate it. Uh, it's the 20th anniversary today of the death of Paul Wellstone. That's uh, correct. You have a great one of piece. The greatest men to ever serve in the Senate. The piece uh, is called uh, Paul Wellstone, 1944 to 2002. My God, I never knew he was so young when he died. But it's in there today, and I was I was so glad that you wanted to talk about it because. I feel like I miss Paul Wellstone more and more all the time. His death was so tragic, and it's such a tragic time. And my God, I, I'm not even sure who we can say the the heir to his legacy is in Congress. And it grieves me that so many people don't remember and don't remember the power and, and the compassion he had for working Americans. Yeah, I, I think that Paul Wellstone was such a unique political figure that you're hard-pressed to, to name an heir because uh, he was distinct. He was somebody who, um, and, and to give the briefest bio on the guy, uh, he was a college professor who decided to run for a Senate seat that hardly anybody else wanted on mm -hmm. the Democratic side against a very strong Republican incumbent back in 1990. He campaigned by rehabbing an old beat-up bus and going around to small towns. He didn't have enough money for ads uh, on TV. He cut one ad that had him running from place to place trying to uh, a very funny ad, but it only aired a couple times initially. And yet um, he made it a close race and then kind of took off at the end as a populist candidate challenging the status quo and won. He went to the Senate and he served two full terms in the Senate or almost two full terms and, uh, and, and never lost his humanity. He was yeah. a very warm, just decent human being. Uh, and... Uh, also, I think that because he was such a, a warm and decent human being, people lost sight of the fact that he was very, very courageous. And uh, one of the last things he did as a U.S. senator was to cast a vote while running for reelection in a tough reelection campaign, cast a vote against going to war in Iraq. And that was at a time when very few people had the courage to do it. Hillary That's Clinton right. didn't do the right thing. John That's Kerry right. didn't do the right thing. John mm -hmm. Edwards didn't do the right thing. You can run Joe down Biden. the list. Yeah. Biden I mean, Ted Kennedy, Ted right Kennedy opposed it. I think Robert Byrd opposed it. Um, uh, no, Byrd did oppose. He was great on it. Yeah. And so was Russ Feingold. There were a few who were terrific, but hardly anybody who was in a reelection campaign that was going to face the voters in a couple weeks. Oh, I remember. I remember. Cast that lonely vote. And he did it. And the amazing thing about it was that instead of... Uh, you know, falling back or being harmed by it, he kind of took off. And it was one of the first real signs, I think, that the people really were much more skeptical about this war than their leaders knew. But it was also just classic Paul Wellstone. And the great tragedy, of course, was he was killed with his wife, Sheila, in a plane accident just a few days after. Right and after. I, I knew Paul very well. I covered him uh, throughout his career. And uh, I remember talking to him on the phone you know, right after the Iraq vote and um, and him saying, you know, he he said, now I'll try and speak in his words as much as I can. He said, 
I really want to win now. You know, I want to win more than ever because I want my victory to be seen as a signal that this war shouldn't happen. Right. And obviously the fates cheated us of that. He was he was killed in a terrible plane accident. Uh, But I I've kind of made it one of my missions to never forget him and to never lose sight of the fact that we had someone in the Senate with that courage and that humanity. You know, it's amazing to think about him and Feingold coming from the same state at roughly the same time. And you quote Feingold in the pieces saying that up until Wellstone, he never knew that uh, a person who wasn't rich could be elected to the Senate, that he just showed a way to do it. Yeah, Uh, it's very true. And, you know, I don't know if today I hate to say this. It's a terrible thing to to say about our politics, because I tend to be very hopeful. I don't know if today a Paul Wellstone could pull it off. Yeah. our politics has become much coarser, much cruder, uh, and also, frankly, much more uh, infused with money. Uh, yeah. And yet uh, he did make it. And he not only won that initial time, he won a tough reelection in 1996. And That's incredibly right. enough, he ran for reelection in 1996 as someone who had done the right thing on really tough issues. Uh, like, you know, he when Clinton uh, sold out on, on fundamental economic justice issues, on fundamental social justice issues, Wellstone broke with him and did yes. the right thing and yet still won. And I guess what I would always say about Paul Wellstone is he served in the Senate as an absolute progressive, one of the most left wing members of the Senate, no doubt of that. And yet uh, he found a way to succeed. And yeah. and I think it had an awfully lot to do with the fact that it's that old thing that we talk about but don't often see in politics. Somebody who is so sincere in their beliefs and, and so willing to talk about them and defend them that even people who disagreed with him would say, you know, I want to be represented by somebody like that. I want someone who actually believes in, in what they stand for. I agree. And I remember being so inspired by Wellstone, by the way he pushed back against the Clinton administration, not just how he pushed back against the Bush administration, because he put principles over party. And and I, I always respected that. I think a lot of people did. Obviously, Ron Johnson is the anti-Wellstone. And we're seeing these the, the campaign getting worse and worse after Mandela Barnes just didn't even break a sweat on the guy last week. And now they're trying to otherize Mandela Barnes, saying he's dangerous, you know, calling a black man dangerous who's been a public servant. Um, what can modern Democrats, John, in an era where the media sure wants us all to believe that their polls have convinced them that this thing's over and America wants more Trump, what can Democrats in this midterm, midterm learn from the example of Paul Wellstone? Oh, I think they can learn a lot. Um, and and the first thing to learn is that uh, don't run away from what you believe in. Don't, don't try and fuzz the matter because uh, the American people, they have many flaws and many weaknesses, but they can, they can tell when a politician is, you know, trying to avoid saying, you know, where he really stands. Uh, I just I just watched the debate tonight between John Fetterman and Dr. Yeah. Oz in Pennsylvania. And, you know, John Fetterman had a stroke and it was it was tough for him in many ways. And yes. yet he answered every question. Mm-hmm. Dr. Oz tried to run away from every question. That's what amazed me. We're going to play some clips of it. But for, for all the haltingness in, in Fetterman's speech, it was Oz who was being overly verbal to avoid giving direct answers on some very simple questions. 
And so I, I only bring that up in answer to your question because, um, you know, Dr. Oz was a classic example of somebody who's avoiding, you know, telling people where he actually stands. But yeah. a lot of Democrats do that as well. A lot of Democrats get scared about, you know, talking honestly about fundamental issues, about about tough issues. And um, in this campaign, for instance, the Republicans have uh, waged an incredibly aggressive campaign on the issue of crime. And and look, crime is there. It's real. And, and we do have to talk about it and have answers to it. Yeah. But the one of the answers is smart criminal justice reform. It's actually a way to address crime. And. Uh, when you see Democrats kind of running away from it and avoiding it, that that's not the way to go. The better way to go is to explain exactly where you stand and have the deeper discussion. And Wellstone always understood that on, on fundamental issues uh, of, you know, again, economic and social and racial justice. He took very hard votes, votes that. Uh, were controversial that, you know, probably put him at odds with where uh, maybe even a majority of people in his home state of Pennsylvania were at. But the, the interesting thing about it is that when he took those tough votes, he would go back to Minnesota, travel to the most small rural towns, go all over the state, uh, spend an immense amount of time talking to people about it. And at the end of the day, um, he convinced people of, of things uh, and, and built coalitions that I think uh, Democrats today would be well well suited and, and wise to try and emulate. If I can tell yeah. you one quick, very quick anecdote, please. Uh, it was one of Paul's favorite stories. He uh, he was very involved with the farm crisis, and and as a urban college professor, standing up for rural people who are in tough situations. And so he would go to farm rallies um, and and to meetings in small towns. And and he was Jewish. Uh, and in the midst of the farm crisis, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. There was there were right-wing groups that tried to come in and really divide up the the farm communities right. and, and divide people up. And his wife Sheila was very concerned that he would go out to these these meetings around the state, and sometimes at night, and, and would say, you know, I really would prefer that you didn't do that. Wellstone said, No, I got to go do it. I've got to. This is a part of what I'm working on. This is a fundamental issue that I'm deeply concerned about. And so he would go to these these events, and he was always the last person to leave the room. Always the last person to leave yeah. the room. He would talk to everybody until the, the night was done. So one night he's out in some very small town, talking away, and and place clears out, and he he's one of the last people leaving what was a tavern. And he goes out into the parking lot. It was ill lit. There was one kind of like one of those little small lights kind of, you know, in the corner of the parking lot. And he's going out to his car. And as he gets to a car, a big, tall guy comes, steps out from another car. This guy's almost like seven feet tall, you know, incredibly, you know, tough, muscular, rural guy. And um, and Wellstone's about five, five, you know, very short, very small guy. And the guy comes up to him and says, you Wellstone? And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Professor Wellstone. And, 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 and Paul was a former wrestler, and so he's sort of getting into a wrestling position. And the right. guy goes, you're the guy who's running around the state talking about all these farm issues, right? And Paul says, yeah, I am. And he says, and I understand you're Jewish. And Paul says, yeah, wh what about it? You know, what, what? And, and the guy sticks his hand out and says, oh, nothing wrong. I'm Finnish. We minorities got to stick together. Uh <laughs> 
I love it. John Nichols, you are a national treasure. I cannot wait to talk to you after these uh, midterms. And you know what? If the Republicans win the House, it will begin the worst period of Kevin McCarthy's miserable life. And that will be comedically viable. Everyone follow John at Nichols Uprising and read all of his stuff. John, please come see us again soon. Thank you so much. It's always great to be with you, John. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back with your calls. This is SiriusXM Progress, 866-997-4748. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, I hate polls as much as you. Why? Because we can't rely on them anymore, can we? I mean, they're polls of people who answer their phone on the landline during dinner hours. They're polls of people who answer their cell phone when they don't know who's calling. But... Uh, Trafalgar Daily Wire, Herschel Walker leads Raphael Warnock 49 to 47%. Uh, in Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto beating Adam Laxalt 49 to 47%. That's the Phillips Academy poll. Connecticut, Democratic Governor Ned Lamont is ahead of Bob Stefanowski 52 to 41%. Uh, Democrats are recasting their closing message and trying to focus more on the economy, more on health care, more on crime. Why? Because the media has told them no one cares about abortion anymore. And people seem to be flipping out. So I'm so glad to get someone like George Gale on our show. He's a community organizer and activist, formerly executive director of People's Action, which is an org formed through the merger of five national orgs into one of the largest with more than a million volunteers and 600 paid organizers, which works for poor and working class people in the United States, also known as the people we most need to get to vote. The status quo counts on low-income people not working. But George's work has helped to create up-and-down ballot campaigns on issues from outlawing predatory lending to helping immigration reform. You can follow his fundamentals for organizing Substack and check out several seasons of the podcast, The Next Move. And he's got a dynamite piece in Newsweek that I want every Democrat to read called Rural Voters Are the Key to Saving Democracy. George Gale, what a pleasure. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Thank you very much. Uh, before we even get anywhere into it, let me ask you, how did a nice guy like you get deep in the weeds, doing the work to save democracy, working door to door, and actually meeting people face to face and doing things that the politicians themselves can't do? Yeah, um, well, it's quite a story. I, I grew up in rural southern Indiana and through a chain of events ended up in a soup kitchen when I was about 19 on Pigeon Hill, uh, close to public housing in uh in monroe county indiana and was there to eat i was struggling and came in to eat a few times and after i ate there i noticed other people would pitch in take out the trash mop the floor or whatever and i decided to do the same and the cook there who ironically in this very rural white uh part of the state was armenian from beirut and decided to invest in me and i got my act together and became a employee at the soup kitchen and then i looked up one day three years into it and it hit me. It was like almost to a person, the same people were in line that were in line the first day I got there. So we'd done, you know, nobody starved on our watch. We'd done nothing to get at the reason people were poor in the first place. And then I became an organizer. That's amazing. And obviously, you know, you have a, a knack for talking to people who don't necessarily agree with you. I mean, we were talking in the break about deep canvassing. And, you know, we were just dealing in the last hour with um, callers wondering and changing 
trading our theories on how do you talk to someone who is so resistant to even hearing your point of view? How do you talk to someone who is going to be blindly, monogamously obedient to the talking points they've been fed about you and thinks you're evil before you even open your mouth? It might seem like a, a fool's errand, but I have nothing but admiration for the canvassers who actually are willing to knock on doors and engage our fellow Americans because we're trying to help them, too. I mean, I've listened to your show. I think you you know we've got to do it. Like, we're not going to win just through turnout alone. And uh, as Trump was ascending in 2016, when I used to work for an organization called People's Action, we started to gather people together who grew up rural or were still working and organizing in rural communities. And we went out and we knocked on 10,000 doors where we actually made contact and we just listened. We asked people three questions and we really went heavily on Obama to Trump counties. There were 676 counties that went for President Obama twice, and a third of those went for Trump. And in many cases, the swings were 20 to 30 percent. It's really remarkable. The highest concentration run along the Mississippi River in Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and, and Iowa. And um, we asked people, what issues you care about most? What do you see as the solution, which was our effort to not assume a liberal solution? Right. And third, who and what do you think is responsible for the challenges you face? And we learned so much from those conversations. But the main thing we learned is people just couldn't believe we asked. In fact, the main reframe was like, nobody's ever asked me before. So out of that, we ended up organizing people that were you know, cross-partisan, Republican, Democrats, independents, people who didn't vote around the issues that they picked. That were Those were addiction, schools. We won the first rural living wage in the country, factory farms, all kinds of issues. But then... We ran into immigration as a bridge too far for many of the rural folks we were talking to. So we started to try this thing called deep canvassing. And deep canvassing was created in California to try to move people around the gay marriage amendment there and later around transgender issues. And we decided to see if it would work on issues where race was being animated by the right. And what works about it is one, these are long form conversations. Nobody knows when you knock on your, their door, you're gonna talk to them for 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes, but they come in. Um, we do not judge people. We do not debate people. We show a lot of curiosity and we surface an issue where there's tension. So the first experiment I worked on was on immigration. Uh, we might ask people like, where do you stand on the idea of expanded public benefits being available to un undocumented folks? And people would, you know, kind of across the board, be pretty low on that. But we would ask, ask them how they made meaning around that, how they came to that conclusion in their lives. And then we would ask them what was a time in their life that they really struggled and they needed help. And at some Smart. point in the conversation, kind of one main thing that would happen over and over is people be like, you know what, come to think of it, I don't know any immigrants. Everything I think about immigration, I learned on the TV. So just by creating the space, having the conversation and, and really shocking people by not judging them, some percentage of folks would open up and start to realize they had not really interrogated their view on immigration. And we teamed up with academics from Ber Berkeley and Stanford on this, and they found that 20 percent of people we talked to had a shift in their their view on immigrants and on a more immigration friendly policy. And it lasted for at least four and a half months. That's when we ran out of money in terms of testing it. But so those those principles of curiosity, non-judgmental, non-debating open up a space. If you debate people, they're going to get their back. It never works. In fact, yeah. last thing I'll say is whenever I give a speech on deep canvassing, people, especially people from red counties and red states will come up to me and say like, wait, everything you just described is the exact opposite of what I do. 
And so I think I think there's opportunity here. People are doing it big time in this election. It makes me hopeful. I think we got a chance in some states because of it. Well, that's why I want to talk to you about your new piece in Newsweek. Rural voters are the key to saving democracy, because you point out something really brilliant right at the top, how so many Democratic Party officials and donors write off the rural vote. Right. Uh, FDR never did that. FDR knew you can't do that, but a lot of Democrats believe Republican talk about flyover country and they want to prove it right. And you talk about many Democratic donors this year have been slow to open their checkbooks altogether, sensing a bloodbath on the polls. But then when all seemed doomed, Kansans, who supported Trump over Biden by nearly 15 points, voted to uphold protections in the state constitution for the right to an abortion. To me, that's not just the democracy story of the year. That's the surprise of the year. Right. That's right. And I think it's just kind of another reminder. We kind of we end up in many ways, Democrats who like hate stereotyping people or at least say we do end up doing it ourselves. A lot of people forget that President Obama won 43 percent of the rural vote in 2008. And then those numbers went down to 30 percent for Secretary Clinton. In, right. in 2016. So 43 percent, 30 percent. Biden pushed him up, not in every state by any stretch, but he happened to push him up in states like Wisconsin and Michigan. And he won the election. Yeah. I think the thing we forget is like Democrats don't have to win the rural vote. They're not going to win the rural vote, at least in most counties in this country. But they can't get trounced. As a little old rural voter said to me from Alabama, she said a lot of blue dots and red places add up. And yeah. I think we need to remember that. I mean, the unsung hero of Barack Obama's election year, I think, is still Howard Dean and the 50-state strategy. Why right. not compete in Alabama? What are you waiting for? And as you point out in this piece, in Russell County, Kansas, Biden only got 17% of the vote when he ran, but 45% of those folks voted in support of abortion rights last summer. Yeah, Americans and voters are so much more complicated than we realize, and I think we need to remember that. I mean, another story you talked about, you know, Basically, the uh, the abortion vote in Kansas being maybe the political story of the year in, in, in 2022. If you go back to 2018, a lot of us said after the election, health care was the big winner. And the mm -hmm. two biggest swing groups from supporting Republicans in 2016 to Democrats in 2018 were single white women who swung 17 points towards Democrats and then young white people, 18 to 29, who swung 16 points. So like. Swings happen. People are the voters are not a monolith. Voters are not static. But if we don't get in there and contest. And the last thing I'll say is like, I just I've been out driving around the country. That's that's one of the reasons I left my previous job was to drive around the country and talk to people. And I meet these rural Democrats that will never be on the front page of Time magazine. They're never going to yeah. win an award or be the coolest people in the world. Most of them are are older people. They're, you know, in many places, they're whiter. They are fighting their guts out just yeah. to get, get a few more votes. It, I mean, they are miraculous. Well, and it's also worth thinking about how much Democrats in this term have been fighting for those same rural people. I mean, you talk about yeah. prescription drug relief. Finally, the government's going to be able to negotiate for lower drug prices, student oh. loan debt forgiveness, everything in the infrastructure bill, everything in the PACT Act that's going to create manufacturing jobs here in the country. We're oh. hearing all the time from the media that, that oh, Democrats are doomed because people care about crime now. And that's the only issue. And I, I, I think crime is important and Democrats need to address it and they can address it proudly and strongly and brazenly. But it's not the only issue. What, what do you think, Mr. Gale, Democratic candidates should be saying to rural voters this year and every year? Because honestly, 
I say this as, as very subjectively, but it's the Democratic policies that help those non-millionaires more than the Republican policies. I mean, I'll just go to like retail community organizing, not even retail politics, you know, which is how I was trained. I came to Chicago and, you know, was trained by some of the best organizers in the country. And after we'd win a victory and I'm talking the victory like we won 12 new trash cans or we got the alleys paved or some really basic stuff. We'd yeah. be out the next morning flyering the neighborhood. We'd be putting up signs. We'd be trying to get a little ad in the community newspaper. Like when you win, you got to tell the story. And Democrats won all kinds of stuff against the greatest of odds. You just named a bunch of them. I mean, yeah. and, and and the benefits. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody from the USDA the other day. The amount of dollars that are going to go to rural communities from the Inflation Reduction Act alone is mind boggling. Ten billion dollars. Will they will they ever know? Will they ever know? Because you see the same focus groups I see and they ask voters about this and voters have no idea about what was in Build Back Better or the inflation reduction plan. A lot of them won't. A lot of them won't. And and I get I I would say one, two things. I mean, I think it's easier to animate hate. You know, I listened to your last, you know, your last call, your last uh, guest in that segment. And I think like it is easier to animate hate in America because of the history of this country. There's no doubt about it. And then we have a responsibility, though, when we t- when we win big to tell the story to as many as people as possible. And you drive around the country and you roll into Brown County, Indiana, you need to pick up the paper and hear about the American Rescue Plan or the infrastructure bill should be on the front page of the paper. We got to yeah. do the work. I think the other side's got an, a structural advantage. It's easier to animate hate. But if we don't tell our story, I think that's on us. I think you're exactly right. Um, you list in the piece in Newsweek the three mistakes that Democrats keep making with rural voters. The first one we mentioned is taking existing rural Democrats for granted. Couldn't agree more. But then you say the next mistake they make is believing that rural white voters are immovable or only moving rightward. Uh, I mean, this completely takes out the fact that, you know, you want to get as many young white people to vote as possible. Uh, young voters are who we should be fighting for. But um, I agree with you. I think a lot of people write off rural white folks as being, if you will, a stereotype from the previous century of what rural white folks stand for. No, they're still up for grabs. I mean, I think the swing in 2018 is one point of evidence. And then from the deep canvassing that we've done, uh, we did 280,000 of these deep canvas conversations in the 2020 election. And we we did a model and we're trying to find voters that were either leaning or planning to vote for Trump that we thought might be movable. And we found a bunch of them to be movable, a bunch of them to be squishy. But you got to be in there and engage. I just went to Indiana, North Carolina, Michigan and Wisconsin and drove around those states and met with rural Democratic county chairs. And they are just fighting for visibility. They just need nice. to have evidence out there that there are Democrats, that it's worth, you know, you know, it's worth going to vote. It's worth putting up a yard sign. It's worth coming to volunteer. I think in many places people are demoralized. And so yeah. they were just fighting for visibility. And so I think that's key. And then I just say the third point, um, you know, of the Newsweek piece is like rural America is way more diverse than most people think. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Urban America's, you know, more diverse, but rural America's way more diverse. There are 104 uh, majority black counties in this country. Almost all of them are in the South and rural. And so, like, we need to be in those counties. Those places do not get resources. They do not get support. Those are places we need to be running the same ads to say what is in the American Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. Latinos are far and away the fasting, fastest growing group in rural America and half of the country's Native Americans 
live in a rural America. So it's definitely we got I'm a believer that we have to like this notion that we're going to give up on the white working class vote is, I think, is a path to to many defeats. Um, And we have to recognize rural is much more diverse than we think. But if we don't get out there and talk to people, things aren't going to end well. And all Democrats have to do is something I will give Joe Biden a lot of credit for talking about what policies we stand for versus what the other guy stands for, because time and again, they're policies that help those rural voters. And again, I think it's very easy to fall into this trap of thinking, well, the GOP voters don't mind voting against their own self-interest because the racism is too powerful. I I, I don't buy it. I, I think that they just don't get media that tells them who's fighting for you in what way. I think that's right. I think we actually do need to invest more in like kind of working class media that gets these messages totally. out. Totally. Both the party spending money, but I think the bigger sector and ecosystem has to build that. And if we don't build it, kind of shame on us because the right has prioritized that. We could prioritize it too. But I totally agree with you. It's not going to win everybody over. You and I both know there's a percentage of folks that are just are pretty far gone, but there are a bunch of people that are up for grabs. There are people that I grew up with in Southern Indiana. But they're not going to know if we don't get out there and talk to them. And it's going to take media and it's going to take face to face stuff and door knocking and visibility in the counties. And I think there are people out there doing it. I met with these rural Democrats up in Algoma, Wisconsin, and I'm sitting at a church with a few. And I'm asking them, like, why do they stick with it? And one woman had had her Tony Evers sign taken by the sheriff, which is illegal. Like, it's not even legal. There are Trump signs everywhere. And there's. That you know, the sheriff comes and takes her sign and she has to go down with four of her friends and fight for it. And I go around and I ask each of them, like, why are they at it? Actually, most of them said because they thought Jesus would want them to stand up to Zuckerberg or or Bezos or Mitch McConnell. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. And then I'm in he Walworth County. He, he would. would. Yeah, he would. Yeah. It's like they were like, maybe I, I was, you know, but I was taught not to bring my religion into politics. I've I was like, maybe you should. Um, so um, and then last I went to Walworth County, Wisconsin, and I asked these folks, I'm like, you guys haven't won an election since the Tea Party. And this woman, Ellen Holly, and I mentioned in the Newsweek piece says, I'm like, why are you still doing this? You guys are working so hard. You're getting death threats. Your office has been vandalized. There was, there's spray paint on the office right now. Why are you still doing this? And she's like, George, we get 50, 60, 70 more votes in our county and somebody else does the same and somebody else does the same in 2022 or 2024 we just might save democracy yeah and i just i drove back home and said i got to figure out how to help these people because they are they are doing some serious work nobody knows about them they'll not win awards but they they just might save democracy can i can i ask a question about something you just said because i i understand that you were taught not to mix politics and religion um and i'm as far away from that as i can be uh my attitude has been for a very long time i don't like seeing how the democratic party has ceded the new testament to the gop the way they have ceded the flag to the gop um or the way they were once accused of ceding family values to the gop that one's gone but um i'm of the opinion that democrats should draw the distinctions more between what is in the gospels and what christ actually teaches for so-called christians versus what the televangelists tell us to prioritize um i think that's the smartest way to approach abortion by the way when debating these folks and i i i get very frustrated about 10 or so years ago the the nation had a cover story how democrats need to get right with god um, it does seem that appealing to Christian voters using Christian text is still a third rail for so many Democrats when in reality, it, it seems like one of the smarter ways to go when appealing to rural voters. 
I, I'm with you. To be clear, that's what I heard from folks. I'm with you. I totally think we need to kind of, you know, own our faith and own our connection to religion. And there's such a huge chunk of like diehard Democrats, you know, believe in yeah. God and are church attending people. And and I'd say the same with, you know, our kind of flag flying people. So I think like every right. time we forfeit, um, you know, these important values in American life and these symbols to the other side, it's like, it makes our job all the more harder. So like, and I think that's the question. Like, I think we're in this like challenging moment of becoming an America that is reckoned with the kind of, you know, our the beautiful founding words and the many contradictions. And we're yes. reckoning with that right now, but we still love America, right? We may, we want to change it. We want to improve it. We want to build upon it, but we still love it. And I think we got to claim it. And I think it, the same goes with people's faith. And so I encourage the folks in that church in Algoma, I'm like, don't be embarrassed about your religion. I think you got to like connect it more to your politics. Well, I'd love to ask you one more question then as a, as a deep canvasser, because all we're seeing in throughout the media are stories about how violent crime is dramatically higher in cities around our country than it was before the pandemic. And it's impacting a lot of people and it is a real problem. And the Republican Party has seized on this issue not to solve it. They've offered really nothing in terms of solutions beyond hypocrisy, but they've seized on the issue trying to paint all Democrats as weak on crime, right? And because they want criminal justice reforms, it means that they want to hand the country over. Meanwhile, these are the guys who are blocking any kind of reasonable gun violence protection legislation for the last three decades. So uh, it's been dispiriting seeing Democrats sort of just be a human punching bag on this issue. How would you advise Democrats and canvassers to respond to folks in rural areas who are watching Fox News all day and realize who, where Fox has settled on this narrative Democrats are soft on crime, and that's the big closing argument. I mean, I would just say, one, you've always got to fight back. And this kind of tendency to put your hand in, head in the sand and hope it goes away on any issue, whether it's crime or inflation or whatever, you always got to fight back. But we are seeing that today's Republicans no longer use dog whistles, but they you know, animate racism and racial resentment with a bullhorn and every damn platform possible. And you've got to get in there and you've got to like, you got to counterpunch, I think, over and over and over. And I think some folks go running scared. I would say that's the main thing. And I, I back to the Democrats in Wisconsin, there was a kind of a big attack on like the kind of waking and consciousness that's happening within many people in this country and the rights yes, coming sir. after them. And I see some folks going like, we should not apologize for becoming more conscious about the history of this country. So I think the same on the crime issue. I, I completely agree. I think Democrats can say, hey, we believe in holding people accountable for crimes yeah. and we believe in smart community policing strategy that, that eases tensions between cops and, and local residents. We, we support quality public housing and funding for mental health to prevent prop, uh, poverty. And, you know, Joe Biden called for a ban on assault weapons and two thirds of Americans agree with him. It doesn't seem like it should be that hard to push back on this soft exactly. on crime narrative. And you happen yeah. to just describe something the Republicans won't provide us, which is a a set of solutions. So I like that. I have one more question for you, Mr. Gale. It's such a pleasure. And I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Where do you stand on uh, on modern polling? Do you take it all with a grain of salt or, or uh, has polling become more sophisticated in the digital age? I mean, I, I definitely take it with a grain of salt. Um, I mean, I more or less based it on who I'm listening to, but I happen to have the 
you know, privilege of knocking on a lot of doors and listening to people. So I, I, I wouldn't say more sophisticated. It, it apparently is becoming less sophisticated. Um, that's where I would say I am. Um, and some days it's all you got as a everyday person that wants to engage. It's all you got. And I get why people get riled up around them. Right on. It is such a pleasure to speak with you, sir. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Sure. If people are into Twitter, uh, my uh, Twitter handle is George. And then my last name is G-O-E-H-L. And then I do have this Substack column called Fundamentals of Organizing, which teaches everyday people how to, you know, organize and fight back. And that's on Substack. And can you tell me about the podcast as well? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a serial podcaster. So well, one, uh, which was originally called The Next Move, is now called Fundamentals of Organizing. And uh, again, and I interview some of the greatest storied organizers in this country, really fun, amazing people. And then I did a podcast called To See Each Other, where we actually follow the story of rural folks in majority white counties fighting for social justice, really busting the norms of what life is like in Trump country. So those are lots of places to check check out what's going on. And I, I've just tweeted out your excellent piece in Newsweek so everyone can follow you through there as well. George Gale, thank you so much for joining us. Please come back again anytime. Hey, this was great. Thanks for having me, John. Thank you. We are going to take a very quick break at 866-997-4748, and then it's going to be open phones for the rest of the evening. And of course, accompanied by me thanking you guys for being so patient on hold. 866-997-GRIT. This is Sirius XM, Progress After Dark, and we'll be right back. Gordon in Illinois, thank you for your patience. Hey, how are you? I wanted to say that uh, on the beginnings of rap, you guys yes. are off by a good 50, 60 years. Who do you who you credit as being the, the architect of hip-hop, if not Grandmaster well, Flash I, and the Furious Five? Who I, do you say? I, I can't even say that he was the beginning, but you got to go at least as far back as Woody Guthrie with the Talking Dust Bowl Blues, uh, <laughs> Pete Seeger's Talking Blues. I went before that. I went to Gilbert and Sullivan Patter songs from the 1800s. Sure, sure. Oh, but I mean, okay. it really originated. It, it it started in the Bronx in New York in the 70s. I mean, that's that's you I, know, it started in parties and, and high school gyms. I think the foundation though is is in old Southern and Midwest blues. I mean, Robert Johnson, that kind of stuff. Just just well, yeah, but, guitar talking and and. And I agree, but a lot of people would say it, it goes back to the West African tradition of griots, you know? And then, and, and, yeah, oh. but definitely the blues and jazz and, and funk, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm a bit wary of giving too many white guys credit for inventing the art form. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I get what you're saying with it. I mean, those kind of fast patter songs, a lot of people have always said, oh, Bob Dylan began it with, uh, with uh, you know, subterranean homesick blues. Or some people say, oh, R.E.M. began it with End of the World as We Know It. I mean, it began in the Bronx. Yeah. It began with beatboxing and turntables as rap as we know it pete seeger even had one talking about he's sitting in bed while his woman's out making money for him i it, know it, well it look look at uh, uh, chuck berry too much monkey business and a lot of people say oh, right. that's the beginning of rap music as well so there's a lot of uh, influences definitely and uh if i can switch gears here for a second really quick your guy calling and screaming at you about how yeah. roosevelt was on the you know hated black people and so on the Democratic Party was not the party of equality until roughly Truman. And it was in That's 1948 right. he uh, gave an executive order to desegregate the military. Correct. And that's when the Dixiecrat Party was formed yep. and the Southern Democrats walked out. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm always happy to talk about the racism of the Democratic Party pre-1964, because since then, we know where the racists found their homes. Thank you so much for the call, Gordon. I really do appreciate it. This is Progress. Progress.